Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Can he do it? That's the title of our sermon today. And if, uh, if you happen to read the verse that was printed on the front of your bulletin this morning, you'll know where the title of the sermon came from. On the front of your bulletin is a selection that comes out of Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a song, a psalm that was a means by which the parents of children in Israel taught their children about how God had worked throughout history with the nation, how they as a nation had oft times rebelled against him, and yet God had been merciful to them time and time again in delivering them. So here's what's written on the front of your bulletin, though. This describes, this particular passage, describes the exodus and them having come out of Egypt, having crossed the Red Sea, and now being confronted by the wilderness with the question of, well, well, okay, what now? What do we eat now? They tested God in their heart. By demanding the food they craved, they spoke against God, saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? It's not a theoretical question. It's not a mere theological question. It's not a metaphysical question that they've got. It's a demand. It's a complaint. It's a wondering where is our next meal going to come from. And it's a statement that is made against Moses and against God himself. Despite all that the people had seen in the Exodus and in the Passover, they craved, they doubted, they grumbled. And, and if I had the rest of the psalm printed on the front of your bulletin here, or if you had it open, you could, you could read that they did not trust in the Lord's saving power. And so with sin in their hearts expressed in their voice, they throw it out there. Can God spread a table in the wilderness. Fast forward 1,500 years, and a vast crowd is in the process of gathering. In our text, we read that there were 5,000 men, which means that there were probably more like 20,000 people who were approaching Jesus and his disciples. They are in at this time, and this just sometimes the modern name for it can help us to get a sense of the place. They're in the Golan Heights, and Jesus and the disciples are there just up above uh, the sea as the people come to them. And as we read in the text, verse 4, it is the time of the Passover. So Moses and manna and the blood of the Lamb of God that would have been spread across the top of the door, and crossing of seas, and memories of deliverance. Those kind of things are in the air 
as people remember the Passover. This is a time when people get stirred up. They recount, they remember the things that God has done, and perhaps they think as well, is God about to do that again? Is God about to deliver us again? Is God going to give us somebody like Moses who can take care of us? Exodus themes like those hang in the air and they permeate the passage that we've got. Not only the one that I just read for us, but the rest of John 6 as well. Things like testing, testing what is in the heart. That's a theme from the Exodus. And it's a theme that resides strongly and clearly in our passage as well. And Jesus seems to bring back the old question. Now, of course, it sounds kind of different on the lips of Jesus. It's not a complaint on the lips of Jesus. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? That sounds a lot like the question that he asks here to Philip. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, just for a moment, imagine that that question wasn't on the lips of Jesus. Imagine that it was on the lips of one of the disciples, where they kind of look to each other and go, where are we going to get bread for all of these people to eat? We might see it as a complaint. We might see it as a doubt if it was said by them. But for Jesus, what we see, and John makes it clear that we don't miss this, is that it is, in fact, A test. Where are we going to provide for these people in the middle of the wilderness? Unless we think, oh, well, that's an easy easy question to answer. You'll recall that just a few chapters back, when Jesus is having a discussion with the woman at the well in Samaria, the disciples aren't there. Why aren't the disciples there? You recall the reason? Because they've gone to look for bread. That's where they are. They're, They're going to secure the bread, And then the whole thing comes back, remember, and and Jesus says, I've got food you don't know about. And they wonder, did somebody get him bread while we've been gone? So asking of the question of Philip kind of puts it all out there. What do you think is going to happen here, Philip? Are you going to go and get us some bread? We'll come back to that in just a moment. Let's consider then today the passage under these three categories. Evident need, abundant provision, and an elusive provider in the midst of the passage. Okay, so the first idea here is evident need. How would you have liked to have been Philip in this passage? You know, did Philip happen to be the guy who was standing next to Jesus or seated next to Jesus when the crowd started coming and so he got the question? Perhaps that's why Philip got the question. Another reason why Philip may have gotten the question is he's from this area. Uh, We read earlier in John that Philip is from Bethsaida Uh, And that is right in this particular region as well. So if you were going to ask someone, where where are we going to get bread? You logically would ask the person who is from those parts, who knows those areas, who presumably knows where you go to get bread in the Golan Heights, in uh, Bethsaida. Perhaps uh, Philip would, in fact, know these things. But, of course, immediately what is clear to us and what John wants us to know is that this question is trickier than it may appear at first. It actually, it sounds like a physical question. It is a physical question. And yet underneath of it, there's a test that is going on. There's specifically a heart test that is being done on Philip 
and the disciples by Jesus asking this question. If you'll recall the verse from the front, in that section there, they tested God. They tested God by saying, can God make a table in the wilderness? Here, Jesus tests. I'm going to test you by asking you the question, where are we going to get bread for all of these people? The, the question makes the physical need plain and evident to everybody who is there. And it's confirmed in the kind of sardonic response that Philip gives to the question saying, listen, even if we had this amount of money, even if we had this vast sum of money available to us, that wouldn't be a drop in the bucket to provide the food for all of the people who, you know, you just see them coming up and approaching you. And of course, that is confirmed by Andrew as well. You know, here's, here's this kid here. He's got five loaves and he's got uh, a couple of fish. And yet there's no way that that is enough for everyone. A doctor may do a stress test on us. He may put us in a condition physically in order to see what's going on internally, in order to measure something that's going on in the heart. And so that is being done here as well. In the Old Testament, we read this. He led you for 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. God put the nation, if you will, under stress 40 years in the wilderness to show the reality of what is taking place in the heart. And all of the sudden, this becomes a very stressful situation for Philip. Prior to this, he probably hadn't even thought about it. Wouldn't even cross his mind how we're going to feed 20,000 people. Of course you don't ask the question how we're going to feed 20,000 people because it's impossible to feed 20,000 people. And now the stress is turned up with Jesus asking him this question. God uses situations like this. He did it in the Old Testament. He did it with Philip and brothers and sisters. He does it in our lives as well. God takes physical situations of evident physical need and he uses those in our lives to get us to reflect, to test what is going on inside of our hearts. Will we acknowledge it? Will we acknowledge that there are needs there? And will we acknowledge on the first place physically that meeting needs is beyond our capacity. And then in the second place, will we allow the existence of the physical need to do their necessary work, and this is what Jesus wants them to do here, their necessary work of unveiling for us the reality of needs that exist inside of our hearts. The idea that we need to see Sorry to use the word need again. The idea that we want to see coming out of the passage is that I am more needy than I realize. And Jesus is exposing the reality that I am more needy, I am more dependent 
than I realize. And human resources, even if I had 200 denarii, human resources are not going to take care of the needs either physically or spiritually inside of us. Jesus is trying to allow evident external need to expose inner need, need that is unseen and which by definition is therefore less evident. And surprisingly, and this we'll we'll look at more as the passage goes on, the inner need is more extreme than the outer need that exists for us. But the story, of course, moves from need to provision. That is to say, the story moves, of course, to abundant provision. So having asked the question, having received the reply from Philip and then from Andrew as well, Jesus turns to the, the, the disciples and says, have the people sit down. Now, I, I'm sorry, I, I, know, I know I like to do this, and I've, I've already done it in this passage, and I want to do it again, but I, I wonder at that moment if I'm a disciple, and I've heard the conversation up to this point, and I've heard what Jesus has asked, and now he looks at me and says, have the people sit down. I, I wonder what's going through your head at that particular moment as a disciple. I imagine that if I were a disciple there, there's probably some combination of guilt because I feel like I've done something wrong. I've missed something. There's confusion because you don't know what's about to take place in this particular situation. But there is also this kind of anticipation. There's kind of an expectation that you must have at this moment to say, okay, I don't know what's about to happen, but I I wanna be a part of it. I, I want to see whatever is about to take place. Have the people sit down. And of course, Jesus then takes the loaves and he gives thanks for the loaves. According to uh, traditional Jewish prayers, uh, D.A. Carson notes that perhaps the prayer sounded something simple like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. In other words, that would be a standard type of Jewish prayer of thanks before a meal, before a distribution like this. And Jesus thus thanks God. He thanks God in the spirit of Psalm 104 that we read earlier. In exactly that spirit to say, Lord, you are the one, the creator God, the Lord Almighty, who has provided all things for the sake of your people. You take care of your people. You create the earth so that it brings forth bread. And we give you thanks for the bread that you have provided. Psalm 104 affirms that God has always been providing, always providing for all the people, for all the creatures on this earth, always preserving them, always governing them, as the Heidelberg Catechism puts it, he's always upholding as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures so that he rules them that leaf and blade and rain and drought and fruitful and lean and food and drink and health and sickness, prosperity, poverty, all things come to us, in fact, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Whether through miraculous means as we are about to see, 
or through his creation and the laws by which he governs and cares for this world. He is the source of all life and the source of the provision for all life. Uh, Leon Morris, who is a, a commentator that I love to read when I have the opportunity, he talks about Augustine's view of this passage, and he writes this, Augustine marvels at the blindness of those who discern God's miracles only in the unusual. And then he quotes Augustine. For certainly the government of the whole world is a greater miracle than the satisfying of 5,000 men with five loaves. And yet no man wonders at the former, but the latter men wonder at, not because it is greater, but because it is rare. For who even now feeds the whole world but he who creates the cornfield from a few grains? Jesus is about to do something wondrous. And we're going to wonder at it. And the people who were there wonder at it as well. And Augustine's point is, really, is, is that so hard for God? He has been doing it since the day the earth was created. He has been providing every single day, every single breath, every single beat, every single morsel of food that you enjoy. It's always been coming from him. Does it take a miracle to say thank you? And yet wonders are wonderful. They engender reflection. They kind of stop us in our tracks. They cause us to marvel because they are exactly that. They're rare. They're different from the way that he normally operates. And sometimes we don't give thanks for the commonplace. Sometimes we let that go right by us without noticing how significant it is. And here in this passage then we see God's incredibly abundant provision. This isn't the first time in John that we've seen it. In John chapter 2 they run out of wine at a wedding and we saw Jesus provide not a few more bottles of wine for the wedding, but lots of wine for the wedding and lots of good wine for the wedding. We see a savior who is an abundant provider for his people. And here in the story that is before us, take note of the fact that the people don't get just a morsel it's not that when that was passed around, people just broke off a little piece of it. Verse 11 says, of the fish in particular, they had as much as they wanted. And verse 12 says, they ate their fill. Lo and behold, there were leftovers. There were lots of leftovers in this meal that the Lord have provided. Earlier in the service, we sang Psalm 23. And as we sang, you reflect on those words. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
Jesus had the people sit down. He had the people lay down there. Uh, John doesn't. T- John just tells us there was lots of grass, just so we know that there was lots of space for the people to sit down and to be comfortable. There's lots of grass there. John says. Mark lets us know it was green. There was lots of grass and it was green. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup is half full. My cup isn't half full. I have extra baskets. And I probably have extra wine left over from the wedding. My cup overflows. What is being enacted for us here is not only a Moses, but a shepherd king who leads his people into green pastures and provides a table for them that is exceedingly, ridiculously abundant in God's provision. There's an abundance to it. There's an excess, a lavishness there in the hills. The good shepherd has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. So eating and seeing this abundance is startling. Startling to us, certainly more startling for the people who would have been there and would have been experiencing it. And their evident need is replaced with abundant provision, which leads obviously to the question... Who is this? Who did it? Who set up this table in the wilderness? How did it get here? Who is that one who provided for us? He seems a little bit like people we've heard about before. He sounds a little bit like Elisha. Back in the, uh, back in the Old Testament, we read uh, this story. A man came bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. It seems kind of like Elisha, what he is doing here. He seems kind of like Moses, who provided us with bread from heaven, manna that came down from heaven. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, So this Jesus, he must be a prophet. In fact, he must be the prophet. He must be the one that we're waiting for. And in an age that is rife with messianic expectation, Jesus perceives that their zeal will translate into a forceful attempt to crown him as an earthly king as the earthly shepherd king who will lead them into green pastures, who will fill their cups to overflowing. The people who are there, they have their categories, they have their expectations, and they want to make Jesus fit into these. They want to 
have some category to explain what has taken place. But Jesus, of course, proves to be elusive. He will not accept their understandings. He will not accept and receive their ideas that are percolating about making him king. And as he will say later in John, my kingdom is not of this world. I am, in fact, a different type of king. And, and, and this is kind of putting more of the gospel into this point than, than is written for us in this story in particular. But you can't understand the kingship of Jesus only through the prism of the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 20,000. It's going to require the cross of Christ to understand the nature of his kingship. It's going to take that to understand what he's really actually offering to us. And so Jesus retreats away from them. He is indeed like those who have come before, like Elisha, like Elijah, like Moses. But somehow, while he is like them, he transcends them. He's more than all of them. He doesn't divide the sea to walk on the dry ground through it. He just walks on it. He just walks on the sea to meet the disciples. Because, Psalm 104, he's the one who created them. He's the one who spoke them into existence. He's the one that said, retreat off the mountains now. Take your boundaries there. One greater than Moses is at hand. He inspires terror when they see him. And then says, fear not. It's I. It is I. So can God spread a table in the wilderness? Physically? You bet he can. It's not too hard. He provides for the earth all the time. And if we need the miraculous testimony in answer to the question, yes, as a matter of fact, I can. If you need reference points to it, you go back to 40 years in the wilderness where he provided for his people in the wilderness, or you go to this story right here. It isn't the norm. It's not the way God typically provides for his people. But can he? You bet he can. But if we see this story as simply as a way to get a meal, or even if we see this story and go, well, that's just that, that's another evidence of the power of Jesus, then we've actually missed the point of the story. Because we need much more than a meal. We need much more than a full belly. That's where Jesus is going to take this event in the discourse that is to follow. This feeding that he's just done, it's, it's not a metaphor. It's a reality. He has, in fact, provided for the people miraculously. 
but Jesus is going to use it as he intended from the outset as a gateway into the heart, as a, as a bridge to get into the soul, as a means to say, listen, I know, I know there's a physical question at hand. I've been providing for you actually forever, but I know there's a physical question at hand, but there's something else. There's something else significant. What do you really want? What do you really need? What actually is going to satisfy you? And therefore, what should we actually pursue? So the question isn't simply, can God spread a physical table to fill your belly in the wilderness? Of course, the answer to that is yes. But the extended question is this. Can God spread a banquet feast in the midst of the wilderness of your soul as you travel in the wilderness of this world? Can he set up a banquet feast there? Sorry. A preview answer. First from Paul. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. A preview answer from Jesus of Nazareth is this. And let the one who has ears to hear, hear and understand. When I provide a meal for you in the midst of the wilderness of your soul and the wilderness of this world, I can because I am. I am the bread of life. Let's pray. Jesus, don't let us be satisfied with the physical things that are around us, the things that we merely see or need every day. Don't let us spend all of our energies pursuing only those things. Help us to pursue bread of heaven, that which does not perish, that which is eternal and forever, and in you find all things. Jesus, create a hunger in our souls. Make the need evident to us, and then fill us. Fill us with yourself and the abundant life that you've offered. Help us to see how much we need you. We ask this in your name. Amen.